Welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the heartland, I am delivering them to you from the heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear from the Heartland. Hello, Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 21 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Hey, Heartlanders, you guys patrons yet? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to join the club. You'll get ad-free versions of this and all our other podcasts, including hundreds of standalone releases from our audio archives dating back to 2012. It's a great way to show your support, and you get a whole lot for it. Hey, what does the Loch Ness Monster eat? Fish and ships. <laughs> what would you call a vampire on sale? A discount Dracula? <laughs> okay, what do you call a wizard who walks everywhere on bare feet, has poor bone density, and really bad breath. A super calloused, fragile mystic hexed by halitosis. So, what's on store tonight? I would guess multiple stories having to do with the Loch Ness Monster, a vampire, and a wizard king. Let's get after it. In tonight's tale, another visit with Solomon White, the paranormal investigator as he travels the countryside inquiring on the mystery of the Loch Ness Monster, a possible vampire, and the whereabouts of Arthur Pendragon. And now for your indulgence, the serpent in the lock, the infant vampire, aftermath, the sleeping savior. Excerpts from The Tainted Isle by Dan Weatherer. The Serpent in the Lock, Urquhart Castle, Scotland, December 1873. My investigation and the subsequent turn of events at Woolpit graced the pages of several leading newspapers. Though it is not a case that I look back upon with any degree of warmth, it must be noted that the story of my exploits and those of the villagers traveled far and wide. What followed was a sudden and varied influx of requests through my door. One such letter heralded from the town of Inverness, Scotland, and contained a fascinating claim with regard to one of the country's largest locks. The letter came from a respected physician based in Bonin and described an encounter with an unidentified creature that the author experienced while walking the banks of Loch Ness. Dear Mr. White, Please forgive my unannounced correspondence, but having seen coverage of your recent endeavors, I trust that you may be the only person who might accept the following tale as fact rather than the ramblings of a madman. My work inflicts a great deal of stress upon me, and often I retire to the country so that I might clear my head and invigorate the soul in readiness for the working week. It was on one such excursion to the banks of Loch Ness that I encountered a creature not only unfamiliar to these waters, but unfamiliar to these times. I was walking alone, enjoying the tranquil beauty that only experiencing the lock by dawn can afford, when I heard an almighty churning of water, similar to what one might hear with the passing of a large boat. Expecting to observe as much, for often such vessels trawl the lock in search of fish, I turned to look out across the water. It was then that I saw the serpent. 
At first, I thought that a rowboat had upturned, and my immediate response was to run to the water's edge, only to then observe the object in the water suddenly changing direction and heading off at speed away from my position. I watched as it wriggled and turned in the water, changing direction several times before submerging beneath the waves. I waited by the shore for several minutes, but of the creature, I saw no further sign. There has been a tale of a creature dwelling within the lock for as far back as I can remember. However, as a respected practitioner of medicine, it would not do for me to speak of my encounter. I have spoken to no one of this matter, save for yourself. I trust that a man of your standing and expertise would be reluctant to cast aside this letter as a hoax and implore you to visit the lock in the hope that you might report a similar experience to mine. Yours faithfully, Dr. D. McKenzie. Intrigued by the doctor's tale, I readied my things and hastily arranged travel to the north. Skylin welcomed me with all of her glory, or so it felt as I crossed the border, entering her lands for the first time. While England is resplendent, with her blooming meadows and rolling hills, Scotland is her rugged yet no less beautiful cousin. Hers is a terrain of jagged rock, winding roads, desolate moors, and a blanket of thistle. Green and purple are her tones, and aside from the flies that nipped and buzzed about my head, this was a journey that, despite taking many days to complete, was one of continuous pleasant surprise. I met the doctor at the ruins of Urquhart Castle, which, although a crumbling wreck, stood as a bold reminder of Scotland's rich and bloodied history. The ruins stand high on the banks of Loch Ness, and it was from here that we would launch our investigation come dawn. Dr. Mackenzie was a curious sort, furtive and elusive. I struggled to imagine him as a trusted giver of care, not for any concern in regard to his competence or intellect, both of which I doubted little, but more for his manner, which at times led me to feel most confounded. I assumed he might have been uncomfortable to be this near the lock, given his previous experience by the water, yet I felt a degree of disdain towards me, as though he were reluctant to be in my presence in case one of his patients should ever get wind of his association with me. Still, the doctor never said as much, nor did I ask outright. I listened as he described his encounter with the creature again, allowing him time to offer his theories, which he afforded me after considering mine. The air of unease would remain between us for the duration of the investigation. We slept in makeshift tents hastily erected in the remains of the tower house. Though they gave us little in the way of protection from the elements, the howling gale which had whipped up with the fall of dusk faded, allowing the gentle lapping of the water upon the shoreline to usher in a sound sleep. The next morning I woke early so that I might observe the sun as it crept above the horizon. After a short breakfast of bread, milk, and cold meats, the doctor led me down to the shore, where we walked the edge of the lock for a mile or two. Several times did he stop and point towards a bank of mud, stating that no creature known to him set aside such amounts of soil in such a way, arguing that these were places the creature had chosen to rest on the land. One question as to why he thought the animal would displace the earth in such a way, he countered that the mud sodden as it was, might provide a cool place upon which to rest, and might also afford the creature a way of keeping moist away from the water. I asked him whether he was aware of any other sightings. He spoke hurriedly of a few fishermen who, having fished these waters for generations, often told stories of a snake-like beast swimming in the lock. He went on to explain that at first he had believed the tales to have been concocted as a means of keeping away fishermen from other villages. Certainly the stories did have this effect. By all accounts, only three boats fished the entire 23-mile length of the lock. When asked if the fishing was good, he told me that although it was possible to catch Atlantic salmon, Arctic char and pike, all species known to grow to large weights, such catches were rare and only small examples were caught. This, he argued, was largely down to the creature that he had glimpsed 
Such a large animal would require a substantial amount of food were it to thrive. It was these larger fish that the beast preyed upon. Though I could not argue against his logic, I found it hard to believe that a creature as large as the doctor had described could remain hidden from sight for so long and survive only on pike and char. True, the lock was vast. It was deemed the largest collection of inland water on the isle and likely offered plenty of places in which a creature might hide. Still, I doubted the doctor's theory until he showed me into the woods, that is. I had chosen to rest by the shore. The morning's walk had been arduous and I was hungering for lunch. A moment to sit and gather my strength while I absorbed the thoughts of the doctor seemed appealing. I sat on a large upturned piece of driftwood and glanced out across the water, wondering at what secrets it held beneath its surface. Mr. White, come quickly. This you must see. The call came from the woods behind me. I stood and turned to find the doctor gesturing for me to follow. This is what I meant earlier. Come quickly. I picked my way across an array of rocks and assorted piles of driftwood to meet him on the forest's edge. Come, he beckoned, before disappearing amid the tangle of trees. I followed and found him standing at the brink of a sizable mud clearing similar to one we had observed further along the shoreline. Lying in the center of the mound was the remains of the largest fish head I had ever seen. It had been nearly severed in half. Pike, offered the doctor, answering the question he knew I was about to ask. A big one, too. See how nearly it's clipped from the body? The pike head was as large as that of an infant. Its eyes stared pitifully towards the sky. There's no fish in that are that can do this, began Dr. Mackenzie. Pike is the largest, most aggressive fish in these waters. He fixed me with an accusing look. Now do you believe me? In the presence of such damning evidence, it was decided that we should remain in the locale for the rest of the day. The doctor argued that, it having recently fed in the area, it seemed plausible the creature might return. I spent the remaining hours of daylight and those early hours of nightfall sat beside the water, pensive and alert. Not once did the surface of the waters break, nor did we hear any sign of movement below. The lock remained unnaturally still, as though deliberately taunting our vigil. Weary and despondent, we pitched tents and made our camp. I recounted several stories of my work to the doctor to pass the time until the hour came to retire to our beds. The morning brought with it a chill to which I was most unaccustomed. The fields of green and purple which surrounded the lock were, on our waking, coated with frost. The forest stood tall and still, the icy winds of the north unable to stir their frozen branches. I had of course packed for the cold, as per my mother's warning, but my coat provided little in the way of warmth when caught in the indiscriminate blast of the wind. The doctor, noting my discomfort, offered a dram of whiskey, saying that a stiff drink was the best defense against the unrelenting cold. Though steeped in unquestionable beauty, the highlands were indeed an inhospitable place. My attention was drawn to the lock, which, despite all logic, appeared to be steaming. This was a most peculiar sight, and, given the conditions of our investigation, unnerved me a little as my mind raced to comprehend the forces that might be at play within the waters. The doctor, reading my concern, began to speak. The lock is so blasted deep that it is impossible for it to completely freeze over. Even in winds as cold as these, and I felt colder, the surface of the lock will never freeze. Never has, never will. I dipped my hand into the water, half expecting it to be warm, shocked to find that it was not, and asked him how it might be possible for the water to be steaming. Water will freeze. Yet our learned man must agree that the laws of nature are unbreakable. I nodded that I agreed this was true. Parts of the lock do, and those parts are heavy and sink, only to be replaced by the warmer water beneath. Steam occurs when the frozen water meets with that which is warmer. Seeing the perplexed look on my face, he continued. Fascinating sight, isn't it? Some say that the creature in the lock is from hell and heats the water by its very presence. 
Some say that, but not I. I know better. We drank our whiskey and ate our bread. The cold that had permeated my essence, having drained my muscles and caused my bones to ache, faded into the haze of my liquor-induced torpor. We'll take a boat today, said the doctor as he began dismantling his tent. I know a man further down from here. He has a boat he said we could use. I didn't say what for. Thought it better left between you and me. It's moored up ready for us. So long as we return it afterwards, there'll be no questions asked. I looked out across the lock, and it suddenly dawned on me that a day on the steaming waters did not sound at all favorable. On the water and without the force to shield us, we were at the mercy of the wind. Never before had I felt such a cold. The winds burned my flesh and made my bones ache and creak. My face was numb, the ability to talk all but lost. We took turns rowing through those steaming waters long into the night. In between lengthy bouts of silence, when my will to continue was tested most, the doctor would assure me that we stood more chance of finding the serpent if we remained on the water. I was too weary from cold to offer an alternate suggestion. For long periods we sat and waited. Our vessel remained steady in the calm waters. We did not drift, not even an inch. Our vision was clouded by the persistent steam. It was impossible to see anything of our surroundings beyond a few feet. Aside from sounds of the occasional flurry of fish, the lock was deathly silent. It was late at night when we first sensed the movements beneath the boat. I admit that, weary as I was, I had allowed my attention to falter and had fallen asleep. The gentle rocking of the vessel aided my slumber, and I would argue it impossible for any man to remain alert after so long an unremarkable stint spent on the water. I suspect that the doctor had likewise fallen asleep. The movement, how best to explain. There was a sudden swell off to my left. I heard the breaking of water, a sound much louder than I had previously heard that day when shoals of fish burst free of the surface. Sitting up, I felt the motion of something large passing beneath our boat. Indeed, such was the force that our tiny vessel rose several feet from the surface of the lock before landing again with a large splash. Dr. Mackenzie was so unnerved by the sudden interruption, he almost fell overboard in fright, and would surely have done so had I not reached to grab him by the arm. For several minutes, we sat in silence as the creature circled us. How do I know it was doing so? I cannot say I saw the beast but the loud breaking of water came to us from all directions in quick succession, and several times did we feel something of great bulk brush against the sides of our boat. On one occasion, we did catch the sound of something that might resemble an animal call, the recollection of which chills me to this day. It began as a low growl, guttural and throaty, before developing into a pitched screech and ending abruptly. Though it lasted only a matter of seconds, the call echoed across the lock for several more. It was at that point that panic gripped the doctor, and he reached for the oars and began to row hard for shore. Whatever had shadowed us elected to remain behind, where the water was deep, and try as I might, I was unable to clearly observe anything of the serpent through the gloom of the night. As the doctor rowed, the splashes of water which had surrounded our boat continued in our rear fading in body, until barely noticeable at all. It was several days after my return home that I received the first of many letters from Dr. Mackenzie. He remained adamant that we had come into close proximity with the Serpent of the Lock, and for several letters further continued to outline his theory that with a large party of vigilant men, it would only be a matter of time before the beast was observed and caught. I agreed that there was something of note lurking within the waters of the lock, but as to what that might be, it was impossible to say. To conclude that the creature was a serpent rather than as a yet undiscovered species of fish or seal was ludicrous, given what little evidence we had gathered. Though I did admit that the cry of the creature alluded to the possibility of the beast being not of fish origin. 
To my knowledge, no such search was ever organized to observe and capture the monster of Loch Ness. Perhaps the doctor could find no men willing or foolish enough to join him on his quest, or maybe he grew tired of the chase. Whatever creature we encountered that night resides there unidentified still to this day. The Infant Vampire Penkridge, Staffordshire, February 1874 Though I found no conclusive evidence of a serpent dwelling in Loch Ness, I thoroughly enjoyed my time in Scotland. Alas, not all investigations leave such fond memories. I am drawn to retell the case of the infant vampire which, I might add, remains one of the more tragic tales I have been tasked with investigating. I was summoned to the Staffordshire village of Penkridge by a troubled elderly woman who had spent what little in the way of savings she had amassed to secure a coach to Manchester where she entered my father's factory and demanded that he speak with her. Upon hearing her tale, my father sent her to my door with a pocket full of coin and the promise that I might aid her woe. As my father insisted that I aid her, I had little need for questions, at least not at this time, instead opting to arrange passage to Penkridge for the two of us. Whatever plight this woman had divulged to my father had moved him to act in spite of his own misgivings, and that alone told me urgent action was required. As we traveled, she related the same story to me as she had told to my father, and what a tragic tale it turned out to be. Esmeralda, for that was her name, had a daughter named Abigail, who in turn had given birth to a baby boy not three weeks past. All seemed well at first. The child came into the world to healthy size and weight, and though the father was absent, Abigail, Esmeralda, and her husband Peter felt duly blessed. It soon became apparent that all was not well when the baby refused to feed. As the days passed, he became increasingly restless and weary, and no matter how many times Abigail brought him to her breast, the baby declined it. The doctor was summoned, and after a thorough examination, he concluded there was little that could be done. By now, the child had lost much of its birth weight, and its skin had taken on a crimson hue. Abigail continued to attempt to feed her baby by breast, reporting that she could feel the beginnings of a tooth breaking free from his gum upon her nipple. Though a breaking tooth at such a young age is relatively unheard of, she gave it little thought, so preoccupied with worry was she. It was only when the child bit into her breast that events took a sinister turn. The child latched onto the open wound with such fervor that, pain though Abigail was, she could not free him from her. The child, it seemed, fed upon her blood and he continued to do so. Each time she presented her breast to the child, he would forego his mother's milk, opting instead to open a fresh wound and suckle on his mother's blood. The baby began to thrive, though the crimson shade of his skin continued to darken. Word about the child's unusual feeding habit soon spread among the community, and the family began to find themselves subjected to scorn and speculation. Some had called Abigail a witch and had turned to the magistrate in the hope that he might act accordingly. Others had stoned the house and daubed it with satanic symbols. Fearful of the growing resentment in the village and curious as to the child's feeding, Abigail had turned to her mother for help. She did not wish to lose the child to the wrath of the village, nor did she wish to hang at the whim of the magistrate. With no explanation as to why her son preferred to feed on her blood, she had no case to present to either. Fearing that it was only a matter of time before someone in the village attacked either her or her child, she tasked her mother with finding aid. Thus, having heard of my exploits in Woolpit, Esmeralda took what little money the family had set aside and traveled north in order to ask for my help. A child and a mother in need is a plea which no man can easily ignore, and I understood why my father had sent her to my door with coin from his own pocket. He was, after all, a father too. Penkridge is a thriving market town situated in southern Staffordshire. On our arrival, the hustle that market day entailed 
seemed to lull as the carriage containing Esmeralda and me entered the town square. A hush fell upon the crowd of shoppers, and slowly they parted to let our carriage pass through. It was immediately clear that those gathered were fearful of Esmeralda. I surmised, afraid of the unknown affliction that had cursed her offspring rather than the woman herself, and angry that the presence of her family might blight their community. The tension as we passed among their number was palpable. Countless eyes locked with mine, eyes that spoke of confusion, eyes that spoke of devout Christianity, eyes that spoke of conviction in their belief in the Lord. At that moment, I understood Esmeralda's fear and her desperate need for aid. This was a community on the brink of acting. I hurried our driver onwards. The back bedroom which housed Abigail and her infant was dark and cramped. At her bedside sat her ailing father, Peter. The child lay asleep in a cradle by the side of the bed. I introduced myself to both mother and grandfather, informing them that Esmeralda had explained the situation and that, God willing, I would find a solution to their troubles. I decided not to make known my fears regarding those I had just witnessed in the town square. Having received permission from the mother, I began by examining the child. Though his initial appearance disconcerted me, the skin was flushed crimson, akin to the color of blood, the innocence of the child was clear to see. Before me lay an infant, as pure and beautiful as any born before or since. That he was afflicted with such peculiarity was far from his own fault. My mother would later say that I experienced a pang of fatherliness and that my inherent instinct to protect the vulnerable was likely raw that day like none other, at least unless I were to one day become a father myself. He slept soundly as I checked his torso for animal bites, his features for obvious abnormalities, and his forehead to determine whether he had a high temperature. All appeared to be normal. I turned to the mother and explained that to rule out the most absurd theories, which I wish not to discuss at this juncture for fear of frightening the family further, I would need to conduct a few simple experiments. The mother gave her permission, and I took a small mirror from my luggage. I had read much on the subject of vampires, and though I considered them to be a fictional creation, my work had shown me a great many wonders that I might formerly have passed off as myth. Though I believed this child to be nothing of the sort, it was good practice to rule out the impossible if one could do so. I took the mirror and held it above the sleeping child. All in the room caught sight of his reflection. This, I assured them, was good. Then, feeling foolish, as it was apparent to me that the child was breathing, I placed the mirror close to the child's nose. Instantly, the glass began to fog. I quickly removed the mirror and returned it to my bag. The mother regarded me curiously, and I for one could not blame her. Tried though my tests appeared, my duty, and my conscience, required that I carry them out in full regardless. Next, I took a vial of holy water, uncorked it, and sprinkled a couple of droplets onto the child's forehead. He stirred slightly and emitted a brief cry, but did not burst into flames or collapse as a pile of ash. Satisfied, I explained to the mother that my experiments indicated that her child was not, at least by traditional standards, a vampire. Addressing these unspoken fear lightened the room somewhat, the grandfather remarking that now they could take my findings to the community, so long as they could quote the words of the esteemed investigator Solomon White. I assured him I would see to it that the village heard my findings directly from me. I asked that I might speak with Abigail alone, for the issue of the child's parentage was one that needed addressing and could yield much in the way of clues as to why the infant was required to feed on human blood. Dutifully, Esmeralda and Peter obliged. I asked her the name of the child. Nathaniel, she said, after his father. Sensing a willingness to talk of him, I asked as to his whereabouts. Gone, long gone, she whispered, her attention fixed upon her newborn son. I don't know where. She explained that he had come to town with a small group of traders who were peddling wooden furniture. It was good stuff, she said with a smile. Small stools and such, nicely crafted. The two of them had begun a conversation which continued long into the night. 
She admitted that she was taken by his polite and gentlemanly manner and that when he made a move to kiss her, she invited him to continue. They made love that night, and at the height of his arousal, he bit hard into her neck, drawing blood. She described the pain of the bite as overwhelming, yet somehow it entangled itself in her throes of pleasure. He suckled at her neck as he planted his seed inside her before retreating into the night, never to be seen again. As she recounted her story, the evident love that she felt for the man carried lightly in the tone of her voice. When she showed me the scars that blemished the pure white flesh of her neck, not once did she appear shamed. For a time I wondered if she ought, before deciding not. This was an experience which, although fleeting, had brought her the greatest gift of all, a child of her own. The circumstance of its conception was, of course, unusual, at least in the eyes of you and me, but to Abigail, that was likely the most memorable and sacred night of her young life. Who was I to judge her? I thanked her for sharing this information and informed her that I would check into the local coach house for the evening to study my notes before returning in the morning to offer my conclusions. She seemed content with this, and I left when Nathaniel woke so that he might feed in peace. I spent that evening in the privacy of my room, far from the racket of the bustling bar, poring over the collection of books I had packed before hurriedly leaving for Penkridge. My investigations all pointed towards the theory that the father might indeed be the reason the child needed to feed on blood. Folklore describes a condition whereby afflicted individuals are required to drink fresh blood on an almost daily basis. To many, this is known as vampirism. That these people are said to be of vampire origin is, of course, no surprise. However, regarding the traditional view, they are as far removed from the monsters of folklore as you and I. They are not undead, cannot manifest themselves as bats or mists, and are not afraid of holy water. For reasons unknown, though many scholars believe it is a matter of mind rather than body, Afflicted individuals are required to sustain themselves on a diet of blood. Having heard Abigail's testimony with regard to the conception of the child and his apparent need to feed on blood, I had to conclude that whatever the ailment, in this case, it had passed from father to son. Though not a conclusion to fill one's spirit with hope, for I could find no mention of a cure, I comforted myself with the knowledge that by sharing my findings with the family and then the community at large, I might be able to dispel a large portion of the fear which had gripped the community and afford the family a life of relative peace. As I settled myself to sleep, I had no idea how wrong I was. I awoke to shouts of panic and the acrid stench of smoke. At first I thought the coach house was alight and I leapt from my bed to the nearest window. Throwing aside the curtains, I caught sight of a house further down towards the edge of town aflame. The streets nearby were filled with people shouting. None seemed to be attempting to douse the fire. It was then that I realized the house that was alight was the same one I had visited earlier that day. I fought through the chaotic crowd that had gathered at the scene of the fire. Most were angry yelling taunts and insults that were lost against the roar of the flames. Some directed their hate towards a small group huddled at the side of the road opposite the burning building. Abigail and her mother and father sat with their backs to the crowd, huddled in a circle. I pushed through the rabble and reached for them, placing my hand on Peter's shoulder. Startled, he whirled upon me, eyes red with fury, tears staining his cheeks. Recognizing me and sensing no threat, he turned back towards the bundle of cloth which he and his family sat around. The townsfolk continued to shout and jeer. Choking on the stifling smoke, I leaned in closer to see what lay in the pile of tattered cloth, only to draw back in horror when I realized it was the body of baby Nathaniel. A tiny wooden stake pierced his chest. I fell to my knees, overcome with remorse, furious with the mob for opting to murder. As the four of us wept together, the remains of their home continued to burn. I elected to remain in the town for the funeral. Few outside of the family attended. 
The community had been gripped by a sense of silent brooding since the events of that fateful night. It was not only the family who wished to see the infant interred in the ground, the townsfolk too wanted to confine their darkest hour to history. Bearing the child would more easily allow them to forget their deeds. The priest refused to let Nathaniel be buried in the usual grounds of the cemetery, insisting that it was not for reason of superstition or folklore. He stated to me several times that he did not believe the child to be a vampire or an advocate of Satan, but one of doctrine. Nathaniel, it transpired, had not been baptized. Therefore, the only plot he could occupy must fall within the north side of the cemetery. The family could not afford a headstone, having spent their savings on the journey to request my aid. I purchased one on their behalf. Again, I ran into opposition from the church. They would not allow us to add the name of the child to the stone. The body of Nathaniel lies in Penkridge Cemetery. It is marked with a headstone bearing a skull and crossbones. I visit it every year to commemorate the anniversary of his burial. Aftermath The loss of the child affected me profoundly. Even now, all these years later, the feelings of woe weigh heavily upon me. Grief brings with it wounds that will not heal. The same pain, the same crushing sorrow, is felt now as was then. Nathaniel was murdered where he lay, and I held myself responsible. Not for the first time, nor the last. I concluded that life was a journey centered around the concept of loss. Fate chose not to bless me with a child of my own, and often I wonder whether the path I opted to follow might have had some bearing on that. Nathaniel was the only charge granted my protection and I failed him. I often question whether this was a test of sorts to see if my character could withstand the pressures of fatherhood. Fate presented me with the protection of an innocent whose family trusted me to make the correct decisions regarding his well-being. If it was a test, then I failed it miserably. Not a day passes that I do not think of him. Often I imagine what kind of man he would have become. Judging by the short time I spent with his family, I would wager a fine one. Countless times I have lamented my decision to delay deliverance of my conclusion to the family and people of the town until morning. Had I returned to Abigail that evening, chances are I would have been present when the crowd, afraid and confused, forced their way into Nathaniel's quarters. Might I have been able to reason with them in spite of their fear? I cannot say for sure. I know, however, that I would have been better placed to intercept the murderous swine who drove the stake into the defenseless child's heart. I'd have given my life for the boy. Of that, I am certain. Whenever I am reminded of that fateful night, a rage unbecoming of me takes hold. This was a family who, through no fault of their own, suffered immeasurably at the hands of ignorance. This was a child whose life was taken by those blinded by religion and their own lack of foresight. Had they held a degree of civility until dawn, I might have been able to instill reason into their minds. I have seen similar events occur several times during my work, where communities, gripped by fear and fueled by the proclamations of the self-righteous, take arms and commit atrocities in the name of God. Many are the perpetrators, yet few are those willing to accept their sin. Each time I have held myself accountable. How could I not? Having inserted myself into the fervor that grips such a community, an outsider seeking to introduce a sense of logic and reason so that all concerned might sleep soundly in their beds once more. Surely I ought to be able to prevent such tragedy? Surely the failure is mine? Many times I have quarreled with myself over this very question, my sense of duty argues that, as a sound and learned man, yes, I ought to be able to steer the ignorant, the fearful, and the misguided away from actions that would later be deemed abhorrent. However, there is the side of me which, as experience has taught, rationalizes that the human condition is often such that in times of duress, it cannot be checked. When gripped by a mood of fear and confusion, it is rarely possible to predict how one individual might react compared to the next. 
This is further compounded when scores of similarly afflicted people congregate. Mob rule is oft unpredictable and savage. I needed to accept that I cannot affect the way people think, and the most I can do is offer an answer that might at best placate them. This was not the case at Woolpit, where my conclusions incited further fear, nor was this the case at Penkridge, where I left it too late to deliver my verdict. At Blakemere, despite my warnings, Strandfold turned up dead, a possible victim of the mermaid I had so warned him of. In these cases, it is impossible to say whether I could have saved the lives that were lost. I see that now, although it took many years for me to accept it. I did what I could, and sometimes that would never be enough. I have made mistakes, too, mistakes that I must take to my grave and I do so willingly. Now at least. Not always, but now. There are more examples of such, but they shall keep for another day. For weeks after the incident at Penkridge, I was disconsolate. I barely ate nor drank. Night bled into day and day into night as I remained at my desk, lost in thought, a plethora of notes scattered before me. Thoughts turned to Jasmine and though I had heard little from her, my heart lifted slightly at her memory. With no one else in whom I could confide, I penned a letter to her, which I laid bare the events that had led to baby Nathaniel's passing and my own thoughts upon the matter. The writing lifted the burden of my woe a little. I found the simple act of documenting my pain highly cathartic. I admit now that I wept many times during the composition of that letter, with it complete, I was caught in two minds as to whether to send it. I wished not to burden her with my grief, yet felt that whatever connection we shared meant she might not only be able to understand my pain, but to alleviate it, if only a little. Her reply is detailed in full below. I read it often. My dear Solomon, Thank you for writing. I shall hate to think of you suffering alone. Please allow me to spend little time exchanging pleasantries, as I know that is not the reason that you wrote me. I am in good health, and all is well here at the house. Again you ask, and again I shall answer. The skull remains silent. I believe that the action taken was deemed satisfactory, for truly the house is blessed with a presence of calm. The Lord ails fairly. His health, though not in any feeble state, is falling short of what I am accustomed to. The maids attend to his every need, and I, as his lady wife, do what is required. Though I ought not speak of this, yes, I find thoughts of you enter my head entirely of their own fancy. I am sure you understand the reason why I chose not to dwell upon these, for my place is here. Now, to matters concerning you, I am Heartbroken to hear the fate of poor Nathaniel, but promise me this, you must accept no fault as your own. You are a man of kind heart, wishing only to help those in need. How are you to foresee the actions that would unfold that night? It is inhuman. To anticipate such deeds is to turn one's back upon humanity itself, and I know that is not in your character to do. You must not punish yourself for the evil deeds of others. Many times, your work, should you choose to persevere, shall place you into situations where fear, anger, and hate abound. Stay true to your heart, for yours carries the wish to help, to alleviate such feelings, and to explain the cause behind the chaos. Many people have benefited from your intervention already, and more shall do so. Stay the path for it is yours to tread. Sincerely, Jasmine. The Sleeping Savior Choosing to ignore the request that lay piled on my desk, I turned instead to my collection of books detailing Britain's folklore for my next investigation. Distraction was required, for the events of Penkridge haunted me still. I was in no mindset to task myself with a study where the choices I made might involve unseen misery and consequence for those the case concerned. 
Instead, I opted to try to uncover the truth behind one of our Isle's favorite sons, Arthur Pendragon. There is much debate as to whether the legendary king did, in fact, exist at all. Though there are countless tales telling of his exploits, many are contradictory, and it is commonly believed that Arthur was nothing more than a fictional creation. Whether King Arthur reigned over Britain during the 5th and 6th centuries AD or not, his legacy remains and his heroic exploits provide the foundations for an array of stories that, despite their questionable origin, have been spoken of for generations. My interest in Arthur's legend concerns his final resting place for which three possibilities are most commonly talked about. These are Glastonbury Tor, Alderley Edge, and Cadbury Castle. It was my intention to explore all three locations in hope that I might uncover the truth behind our country's greatest monarch, once and for all. Alderley Edge, Cheshire, July 1874 Of the three possible burial grounds, Alderley Edge lay closest to Manchester. It is a tiny hamlet not 15 miles from my home. Common sense dictated that I explore the nearby caves associated with Arthurian legend first, before embarking south to Somerset once I had ruled out Alderley Edge as Arthur's final resting place. You may ask why such a desolate and secluded maze of caverns might be associated with the legend of Arthur. Were it not for the existence of a spring, the water of which trickles out from the rocks beneath the visage of an elderly man that some deemed to be an impression of Merlin, the fabled wizard of Arthur's court, there would be scant reason to suspect that Arthur had ever visited the area. The villages, surrounded by thick forest, untold numbers of caverns and craggy rock formations, all of which add further character to the assorted tales of Arthur that the area claims as its own. A farmhand showed me into the forest, talking excitedly of the miscellaneous sprites and boggarts that were said to call her home. I listened with only a passing interest, as many of the tales recounted were slight alterations of ones I had heard many times over. Still, it would not have been polite to dampen his enthusiasm, and I played the part of the active listener. After an hour or so, we emerged into a clearing where before us stood a towering wall of rock. A faint trickle of water could be heard above the ambiance of the forest, though I was forced to examine the rocks carefully to be able to ascertain where the sound came from, so weak was the flow. Having located the source of the spring, I traced the water until I spied what many had claimed to be the carving of Merlin's face. In such a light as the summer day afforded, I agree that at a particular angle, and when it was cast in particular shadow, one might interpret the shape of the rock to resemble that of a face. To my eyes, I saw the resemblance as a mere trick of the light and the rock formation as nothing more than a natural occurrence. There had been mention of an inscription located beneath the carving in several of my books. Of this, I found no sign. My guide thought otherwise, and when I asked as to just how he imagined someone might be able to carve the image of an elderly gentleman halfway up what I accounted to be a sheer rock face, he merely replied that the carver had climbed. I chose not to argue with his logic. The farmhand, who is no more than thirteen, continued with his theory, citing that Merlin watched over the final resting place of Arthur from high atop those rocks so that he might sleep soundly until the day arrived when England required his aid once more. A romantic tale for sure, though I couldn't help but wonder what might qualify as England's need. After all, Arthur had remained absent during the Norman invasion, nor had he been present during the outbreak of the Black Death or the early fires which blighted London. Unperturbed, I followed in the eager footsteps of my youthful guide until we reached the entrance to a series of caverns. This, he proclaimed, was the final resting place of not only Arthur, but his company of knights. According to him, they lay undiscovered in the deeper reaches of the caverns. When pressed as to why no one had thought to explore and chart said caverns, the boy claimed that none had dared to out of respect. Now, a seasoned cavern explorer, or so I foolishly believed, I elected to enter alone. I carried with me a large ball of fine yet robust fishing line. I trusted one end to the boy, instructing him that no matter how long I was absent, 
it was to not let go of the line, as this would be the means through which I would find my way out of the caverns. He nodded meekly, and I saw the fear of responsibility take hold of him, his face quickly draining of all color. With the fate of a quick retreat resting solely in the hands of the young boy, I withdrew my pocket tinderbox and entered the mouth of the cave. Familiar sounds and smells flooded my senses, and suddenly I felt instantly transported back to the time I had spent underground in Woolpit. The mind has a peculiar knack for recalling memories as if they had taken place yesterday, particularly if scent plays a role in such memories. The air inside the caverns was cold and laden with moisture, but the aroma of the earth seemed sweet. The trip through the caverns of Elderly Edge, though not altogether pleasant, certainly did much to dismiss the memories of the fetid passageways that littered the area surrounding Woolpit. Several hours were spent underground, and not one anomaly did I find. Beyond this, I sensed no tangible feeling of there being more in the air. How best to explain, as likely at this point I sound vague. As my experience in the field of paranormal investigation grew, I became aware that I harbored a latent sense that only made its presence felt when there was something amiss that I had previously overlooked. This sense developed over the years, and one could say it might have been a heightened form of intuition. Had I dedicated time to study it further, I might have a more profound explanation as to its origin and purpose. However, I ramble. My intuition proved correct. I emerged from the caverns later that evening having found nothing of note. The farmhand had remained as he promised he would, the line still held in his hand. Alderly Edge, pleasant though the visit was, yielded little in the way to convince me that Arthur Pendragon lay buried within her lands. Thankful for an afternoon well spent, I turned my attentions to the south. Glastonbury Tor, Glastonbury, Somerset, August 1874 Glastonbury Tor has an array of myths and legends attached to the site, not least that some believe Joseph of Arimathea came to this place preaching the gospel, bringing with him the cup of Christ, more commonly known as the Holy Grail. It is also said that he founded the abbey that now lies broken and derelict nearby, thus immortalizing Glastonbury as the first Christian site in the country. Many believe the grail to be buried beneath the third and largest tor. The tors are a series of hills that stand tall amidst the lowlands of Somerset. Their exact origin is unknown. However, my concern was not with the religious connection to the Tors, but the tales that tie the site to the mythos of Arthur. Long ago, it was believed that the Tors were surrounded by water, making them islands, the largest of which was named Avalon. Avalon featured heavily in Arthur's legend. It was the place where his sword Excalibur was forged, and it was where his wounded body was ferried after the Battle of Camelon, or so the stories say. Should the Tor indeed be the fabled Isle of Avalon, I concluded that I might find clues as to Arthur's burial place somewhere within its grounds. The Tor is a magical place by day. Dominating the skyline, it rises like a beacon, atop it sitting the crumbling tower of St. Michael's Church. Whether Arthur lies here or not, the site is integral to a great many religious beliefs and provides the backdrop for dozens of tales. This was a place I explored in solitude. Again, I felt no presence or dark intent, only the air of calm that lingers in the most sacred of sights. I believed that the Tor had tales to tell. I was just uncertain as to whether Arthur featured among them. Even should the legend prove to be a work of fiction, I could only imagine the inspiring sight the Tors once would have been when surrounded by water. Such an image would no doubt have fired countless imaginations. There was magic here, the magic of storytelling. I spent several hours examining the symbols that adorned the remains of the church and the abbey, yet could find nothing which might relate to the tale of Arthur. My books had discussed the previous unearthing of a pair of skeletal remains in 11 AD, which many believed to be the bones of Arthur and Lady Guinevere. The argument was thus. The Tors acted as burial mounds, and King Henry II, 
who was attempting to stave off a Welsh uprising, uncovered the bodies in the hope that it might mean an end to the Welsh hopes of their king returning from death to aid them. I had seen similar but smaller mounds elsewhere in the country, and though it was later reported that the skeletons had been placed in order to be found by King Henry and his men, many still believed that Arthur lay buried deep within one of the tours. The tours seemed a possible resting site that I could not argue against, but I felt that there would be a marker or a symbol hidden somewhere that would allude to this. I found nothing that might be interpreted as such. So, with neither the means, permission, nor willpower to dig into the hearts of the Tors, I elected to resume my search for Arthur at the site of nearby Cadbury Castle. Cadbury Castle, South Cadbury, Somerset, August, 1874. Here was a place I would describe as having a certain magical feeling in the air. Perhaps in my gut, I always suspected that this site more than the others might hold the key to the truth behind Arthur and his place of burial. Indeed, the castle was known as Camelot for many centuries. Legend either dwelt within the walls that once stood upon this vast mound or inspired them. Lying only 11 miles south of Glastonbury Tor, a stronghold has stood on this site since the Iron Age. Built high atop the surrounding lowlands, the fortress was afforded expensive views on all sides. There remains nothing of the castle that once dominated the Somerset skyline, which gave me little hope of finding any evidence of Arthur's legacy. At first glance, there is only sculpted land and forest. No stone or mortar survives this place and has not for many centuries. Still, by reading the lie of the land, one can easily imagine how the structure once stood. I walked the folds of earth that surrounded the base of the hill. I walked the ramparts, and I walked the forests. I walked them with diligence. There was the feeling that something lay hidden here. Again, I cannot describe it other than to say I knew that there was more to this site than met the eye. This was a place of great significance. Day melted into night, but still I walked until, quite by accident, the heel of my boot caught on something metallic and unseen. I shall not say where, and you shall understand why in due course. I searched the grass at my feet, pulling great tufts free from the earth until the glint of metal caught in moonlight drew my attention. I dug with my fingers, gradually uncovering a small iron ring. Grasping the ring with my thumb and forefinger, I pulled, not with any degree of force, I hardly expected anything to occur. I saw the ring and instinct said pull, and to my surprise, the earth before me lifted with ease. The trapdoor appeared to be made of stone, yet I had lifted it with but one finger. The mud and soil upon it remained unspoiled, and for a moment I sat, toying with the weight of the thing which, and I cannot for the life of me begin to explain it, appeared to be nothing at all. Below was a stone staircase which descended into darkness. I set the trapdoor aside, removed my hydrogen lighter from my pocket, and followed the steps down into the bowels of the earth. I counted 33 steps before I reached level ground. Before me lay a stone-cut arched chamber which curved gently to my left before disappearing out of sight. Periodically, lanterns hung from the walls, their flames burning blue. I returned my lighter to my pocket for the torches provided ample light. I passed close by the first and felt no lick of heat from the flame. I moved my hand over it and felt nothing. How they burnt, I cannot say. It was evident to me that this was a place in which few had ever trodden. I continued along the length of the passageway for several minutes. As I traveled deeper, the curve of the tunnel seemed to tighten as though I were walking in an ever-decreasing circle the features of the passage never altered. Eventually, I emerged into an antechamber where a pair of gilded doors blocked my way. Inscribed upon them were numerous symbols and designs, some of which were instantly familiar. I had seen similar designs in many texts. My pulse quickened as I pushed them open and stumbled into an ornate throne room. The room featured walls that were impossibly high, for where I saw a ceiling, there ought to have been the clear Somerset night sky. The walls were lined with tapestries that told tales of legendary battles 
each involving the Night King and his Sword of Legend. There were three thrones set at the far end of the hall. The one to the left held the slumped skeletal remains of the man I took to be king. Such was the size of the crown fastened upon his head and the ornate design of the sword which lay upon his knees. To his right sat another, wearing a slight yet elegant tiara and a flowing gown of golden thread. Between them sat a third throne. The occupant of this was a child, probably no more than the age of five or six upon death. Fastened on the skull was a small tiara. Leaving that place, I felt a fresh sense of vigor. I had discovered the final resting place of King Arthur and his queen. Not only had I found proof that the King of Legend had in fact existed, but I had also found evidence of his lineage that the tales had previously ignored. Arthur had sired a daughter. Recalling this story now, I am torn as to whether to divulge the exact location of Arthur's tomb. I know that none have visited since, for I doubt that anyone could keep such a discovery as much of a secret as I. Discovering that myth is actually fact returned to me the sense of adventure I had previously lost as a result of recent experiences. I realized that not all of my investigations would end in tragedy and that I might, in fact, better the lives of many through my work. I have kept the discovery of Arthur's resting place to myself for decades. This was selfish of me, I know, yet every time I wavered in my self-belief, Every time I questioned my work's worth, I would think back to the summer's night spent at Cadbury Castle and smile. I kept my fine secret so that I might draw strength from the memory when doubt threatened most. Finding Arthur and his family was my private achievement, proof that there is magic and more in the world. Needing this no longer, I shall share the location of the trapdoor which leads to King Arthur's tomb. Southeastern Ramparts outer reach. Two trees grow alone together, almost entirely parallel to one another. The trapdoor lies between them. Dig for the ring. Be respectful upon gracing the king and his family with your presence. Hope you enjoyed tonight's tales, The Tainted Isle, featuring The Serpent in the Lock, The Infant Vampire, Aftermath, The Sleeping Savior, by Dan Weatherer. Award-winning author Dan Weatherer was first published by Haunted Magazine in spring 2013. Aside from the publication of numerous short stories with a multitude of presses, his next major project was a solo collection of short stories titled The Soul That Screamed, winner of the Predators and Editors Readers Poll Best Anthology 2013. An accomplished playwright, Dan was the winner of the 2017 Soundwork UK Play Competition, a finalist in the Blackshaw Showcase Award 2016, and a two-time finalist of the Congleton Players One Act Festival 2016. Dan has had several of his plays appear at festivals and fringe events. The Dead Stage, a book detailing Dan's experiences as a novice playwright, was published courtesy of Crystal Lake Publishing in October 2018. In 2019, Dan was nominated for a Local Heroes Award, The Sentinel, for his continued promotion of literacy and mental health issues in the city of Stoke-on-Trent. In 2020, Dan became a contributor for Creepypasta Stories and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. 2020 also saw the release of his novella, Cheslin Meyer, Domain Publishing. Check out Dan's website at www.danweatherer.co.uk. That's D-A-N-W-E-A-T-H-E-R-E-R.co.uk. If you enjoyed tonight's story, hosted by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley, you can search my name on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for additional previous stories. 
If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks. Available now on audible.com or just visit paulsbooks.net. That's P A U L S B O O K S.net. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd really appreciate it. I'm your host for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland.